0: It really is all about choice, and to your point, for those who philosophically uh, wish to purchase organic or another label claim and and have the means to do so, um, that's one thing, but you're exactly right. When we have individuals that are making difficult decisions, making sure they have access to a safe, wholesome, affordable food supply, um, that does use the best animal husbandry, animal science, uh, in our case, or crop science in other spaces of agriculture, is necessary and that's why uh, back to you know that number one resource it's taking the time to really understand and research an issue
1: hi i'm heidi harriet welcome to animal tales where we talk about my favorite subject animals on the podcast i've done several episodes regarding animal agriculture the folks who work in agriculture raise our food whether crops or animals. There's a lot of information and a lot of ideology around this, a lot of even confrontation. Today I'm talking with J.J. Jones, the Executive Director for the National Institute for Animal Agriculture, continuing our conversation about the animals, the food source, and different legislation and regulations popping up around the country and what is really in the best interest of the animals and what has science and generational experience behind it and what are just scare tactics. There's so much more to this story. So I know you'll enjoy our continuing conversation about animal agriculture with JJ Jones. Hi JJ, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, good afternoon and thank you.
1: It's uh, great to have you here. Um, Let's start out by telling folks uh, the organization you work for and what you do for them.
0: Sure. So I am on the staff team for the National Institute for Animal Agriculture. Uh, We're an organization, a nonprofit that's been around since 1916. And while the specific verbiage of our mission has has adjusted from time to time, the overall theme has really stayed the same for the 100 plus years that we have been in operation. And that is to convene animal agriculture uh, leaders from multiple sectors of the animal agriculture supply or value chain uh, to learn and discuss and explore and then develop collaboration to continuously move animal agriculture forward uh, we obviously recognize that animal dried proteins uh, have always been and continue to will continue uh, to be a, an important part of our food system and our diet and so we just want to make sure that we're always doing our best in terms of animal husbandry and health and nutrition food safety animal welfare and the variety of topics that that go into producing a safe wholesome affordable food stuff
1: boy that is a tall order for your association, isn't it? (laughs)
0: It is, but as we were visiting before we uh, started recording, it's really rewarding to see so many individuals who bring diverse backgrounds and expertise and a passion to the conversations we have or the convenings that we, we host because they bring um, a, a depth of knowledge and expertise that is unique, I would say, because they represent multiple species and multiple sectors of the value chain. So while it is a tall order, it's also very rewarding to see so much collaboration happening to ensure uh, that our part of the food system is doing the best job that we can.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm really passionate about this topic uh, uh, of the broader topic of animals. Obviously I started the podcast as I was uh, relaying to you because I feel um, in looking at information about animals out there in, in across all type of animal related businesses and such, it's uh, become such an emotional, philosophical, ideologic discussion. And those of us who actually love care for and work with animals understand that practicality, reality, and best practices, animal husbandry are what we need to focus on. And then you have the added component in your world of uh, the security and safety of the animal proteins of food products. And, um, So my podcast is designed to talk to the lay people, the people who are in this case, just feeding families or trying to feed themselves and understanding it with all the misinformation and the actual lies that are out there that are scare tactics, right. To um, everything from GMOs to antibiotics in our animals. And uh, you know, we're scaring people in every way and I it's disheartening and I know it's also not, factual. So folks like you guys are coming together, bringing these entities together. So maybe we'll start there. So, um, the person who's just not become a vegetarian or vegan and wants to utilize animal proteins, but here's all these horror stories. How do they, what's their best resource to find that, find out what is factual and not. And, um, what's the what's the comfort level that that you would provide someone who may ask you that question
0: so and not to sound cavalier in my response but the best resource for any of us who are researching a choice in life and obviously like you I'm very passionate about food and agriculture I grew up on a ranch uh, my my degree is in animal science and international agriculture I work in this space day in and day out Uh, but at the end of the day i'm also a foodie i I think everybody (laughs) should enjoy food it's one of the elements of life that bring people together we celebrate with it we provide it to those who are vulnerable so we shouldn't be scared of food so what i started to say that the best resource when we're discovering or learning about a new topic or researching the best choice for ourselves or our loved ones is time and what i mean by that is yes we hear um information that may be sensationalized or may be designed to draw our attention. However, if we just take even 30 or 45 seconds, take a deep breath and think about what makes sense, or to de-sensationalize the headline or the tweet or the information that's just come across our screen to say, let me think about this. Does this make sense? Uh, And look at it from multiple angles. And that's really what at NIAA, the National Institute for Animal Agriculture, we try to do is bring together as many differing viewpoints as we can to understand the best way forward. Because success or continuous improvement is just that it's continuous. It's never... A place we arrive at. So, for example, animal welfare is a topic that you and I are passionate about, that consumers are passionate about, that our neighbors up and down the street and around the world are passionate about. What my grandfather and grandmother did on our farm and ranch was the best they knew how to do at the time with the tools the science the research that they had what my parents did what now my brother and i what my nieces and nephews will do is going to continuously improve so um, when you talk about the best resource really the best resource we have is our time and the ability to ask questions and and dive more deeply into a topic Um, i'll i'll Close by getting a little bit on my animal science degree soapbox. And it's also remembering that all species, all animals are not created equally. So, what is best for our children of the human right, uh, species is one thing what's best for our companion animals a dog or a cat is another thing and what's best for uh, a cow or a pig or a horse or a lamb uh, maybe another thing and it's not right it's not wrong it's just different because just like all of us are different as humans all animals are different in their um, the way they need nutrients the way they are uh, designed uh, to engage with the environment around them, uh, and a multitude of other aspects. So I'll step off my soapbox and just encourage people anytime you're confronted with information that, again, you're kind of going, okay, I need to know more about this, or this causes me pause, well, pause and and think about it and do a little bit of research and, and go from there.
1: Boy, that is just perfect. I, you know, I think about this a lot. I talk with a lot of folks on this podcast. I've done other episodes about an agriculture and food safety and that protect the harvest and the animal ag Alliance and all the folks, you know, well, and, and, you know, um, but I I feel like you just were, you're onto something or maybe, maybe you've put me onto something, which is if you're hearing something that scares the bejesus out of you, Mm -hmm. if it seems so over the top, that should be your first indicator that it's probably not just factual, common sense, based in fact information. It's a scare tactic to get you to spend money or pivot you away from one product, like the GMO scenario or, or, you know, beef. You know, we're not going to eat meat anymore, whatever that is. And it's these terrible scare tactics. So I really love that. I'm going to start utilizing that on my Non-animal friends. <laughs> um, I, I just think that's that's perfect. The more the scare tactic used, the more likely it, it's uh, not rooted in science. And um, I also love what you said as a generational animal person. Again, we come from Different, different aspects of it. Yours in the um, you cattle, yeah. You guys had primarily cattle and horses, yeah. yes. Okay, so uh, I say that all the time. We knew what my, they knew. What they knew. My grandparents, my my parents, but they always, you know, I uh, we pride ourselves on the fact that they did the best, and the animal always came first. That was important. Oh sure. And my dad drilled that into us. But when you have generational experience and you take the best of the updates it's science and technology and best practices and keep the generational experience, the great parts of that, that is the program. That, that program survives all the tests and we're trying to dismantle that saying that everything we did in the past was terrible. We need to change it all and, you know, becoming again, emotional about it. So thank you for that. I, I appreciate your saying that. I think that was uh, something that, that um, I consider a lot. And then the other aspect is the anthropomorphize separating out all are not created equal. And we live in a world where we just automatically, what do we have? uh, You may have a better statistic. The last time I kept a statistic about it, less than 10% of the United States were involved in any form of agriculture and were urbanites. So they're removed from animals, even pets at some level. And so they really don't, it doesn't resonate with them and they believe things that they shouldn't and they anthropomorphize more consequently. I don't know if you have a more updated stat about how much of our, our country, let alone the world are not involved in this
0: sure well especially here in the united states as you pointed out it, it is a, a super minority in this case and and i've seen different statistics as well if you're talking about individuals who are deriving their primary income from farming and ranching it's closer to 2% or less wow. and then as you pointed out now if you start to extrapolate that out to individuals who are in what we would call allied industry who may be providing services or products to uh, the animal agriculture or even crop agriculture space it starts to 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 get higher and higher but again as you noted um so many of us are removed from different aspects you know not to um use this uh line of thinking too much, but I think about my grandparents, you know, they tended to, especially my great grandparents, uh, they had multiple species, multiple crops that they raised on the farmer ranch. They were much more diversified over time, especially in a post-World War II era, we became much more specialized. And so our family navigated more towards beef cattle production. You know, we had neighbors who specialized in dairy, others who were in pork or poultry production, et cetera. And so I often share too, that Um, While I work for the National Institute for Animal Agriculture and work with multiple species now, um, I'm most comfortable in the bovine or cattle space. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we start getting into poultry or aquaculture and some of uh, the other species, I rely a lot on our members because there's things that that I don't know um, and that I'm still learning. And and I guess that's another trait uh, of our family. And hopefully a lot of us, uh, we're constant learners. We always want to learn something new. So I can only... Imagine if you don't come from a farming or ranching background. Uh, we want to answer your questions. We want to have a conversation with you because there's probably um, whomever that person is, what their career or vocation is. There's things I can learn from them as well, and it's it's a conversation.
1: Yeah, for sure. So it's it's really a small segment of people in in the big picture that actually feed our country. Is that mm-hmm. that's correct?
0: Yes, and I think you know there's a, a few things um, I've always been taught that a, a significant contributor to that is that's the way we as a society have set up our economies. Um, that are, for example, the the farm bill that Congress is working on right now um, has traditionally been established to reward or encourage efficiencies, and so as we became more efficient in farming and ranching. One family could manage more acres or mm-hmm. manage more animals. Um, and therefore then uh, others who may have grown up on a farm or a ranch then could go off and, and do something else. Right. Um, so, uh, it, of course, it's like anything. There's two sides to the coin. Some people, their value judgment may be that that's not a good thing. Other things, other people, excuse me, would say that's the best thing in the world. But that's always a societal conversation we'll sure. have. But at this point, um, we're fortunate that we do have such an efficient system uh, to provide a safe, wholesome, affordable food supply with, uh, with fewer and fewer people having to work um, in some of those conditions or those spaces.
1: And we can take comfort in that that we oh, do shit. have a safe food system again that's such a scare tactic of i tend to just fall in the middle that's what my podcast is all about the the middle not the happy face emoji and not the angry face when especially in animal story it's the thinking face the be thoughtful be curious you know want exactly. to know more as you alluded to earlier so the um you know i'm i i stay in the middle but people are very very emotional, very strong opinions. And we take this much information and decide something on it when it's almost more harmful. You just mentioned the farm bill and um, a little bit about legislation or regulations. There are things out there that sound good and people think are in the best interest of the animals or whatever, Um, like California, the pork proposition, that type of stuff. It seems from my knowledge of it that these are generally more harmful than helpful. And again, based more on an ideology or not the reality of the situation. I don't know if you want to speak to that a bit.
0: Sure. Well, obviously we always want to do what's in the best interest, as you mentioned earlier, of the animal. And uh, there's a couple of, of, of ways to look at that. One is through the purely bench science aspect. So, for example, if we talk about pigs, um, we have to remember pigs are a naturally nesting uh, species that when a sow gets ready to give birth, she looks for a quiet space where she can go by herself to have her pigs and care for her young. Um, So there's actually been some studies that looked at if you remove sows from uh, farrowing crates, uh, so that duration of time when they're about to uh, give birth, where they are placed in an individual stall uh, for their own health and well-being, if you actually take the doors off and allow the sows to roam openly in a barn, for example, they will go in the farrowing crate on their own because they're looking for that seclusion, they're looking for that safe to give birth now we also do it for the health and well-being of the piglets that are just born Um, sows can be very large uh, and when they are giving birth to 10 12 14 little pigs um, unfortunately in in the natural environment if they're out uh, in the outdoors um, there's a lot of death loss because the sow might lie on another pig or predators and other aspects. So we, we always try to balance what's in the best interest of the sow, but also those pigs that have just been delivered. Um, but a new area of research that I find fascinating, and it really started in the European union, but um, has taken off here in the United States as well is um, the five domains. Uh, of animal well-being or animal welfare. And so we do hear a lot about now how do we make sure that that animal, for example, can exhibit its natural behaviors right And so that's where uh, to your point, sometimes we pass legislation or we put rules and regulations in place that sound good. However it may not be actually in the best interest of that animal. Yeah. to jump species one that i always like to remind people uh, is in the poultry space um we like to talk about free-range chickens <laughs> um i hate to tell people or bursting by this bubble but chickens by ancestral nature are jungle fowl they don't like to be in the open they yeah. they look for shaded areas where they can get away from predators uh, because they do have a lot of predators, not only searching for them as the chicken, but their eggs. Everything
1: preys on a chicken. (laughs) Exactly. So,
0: you know, you look at, um, yeah, you look at some of these uh, these free range or very open concepts. And, you know, I guess if you have the, 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 the human power or the, professional you know the staff whatever you want to call it the family members to stand out there and watch these animals all day long so that hawks and fox and coyotes and everything else don't, the neighbor's dog the dog uh, don't get to them um that's great however uh when you look at chickens that are just pushed out into an open environment you know your death loss which i don't think is a very good animal welfare um indicator if it's high because it hasn't yeah. been a life for that bird um you know it gets in the double digits very quickly however when we allow them to be in barns in climate controlled spaces where they have a balanced ration they have the light and the access to fresh air and everything that they need um, it mimics a lot more like a jungle environment versus throwing them out like we do cattle on open range
1: yeah i i I say that to my non-animal friends all the time that you know, sometimes we use cages or fences or whatever. And even a pet dog will, will volunteer to go. Like my dogs love their yeah, cages. It's someplace like it that they feel mm-hmm. comfortable. But we do that not to um, not to make sure the animals stay in, to keep them safe. And a lot of times exactly. they will opt for that. I'm talking mm-hmm. with J.J. Jones from the National Institute for Animal Agriculture, having a great conversation about all facets of really animal agriculture. We're covering covering a lot of ground (laughs) here. Um, In California, the pork proposition, I believe, passed, did it not?
0: It, it did. It passed, and then um, there were groups that had challenged uh, that legislation within the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sided with uh, the, the state uh, yeah. in terms of what their voters voted for. So uh, that law has gone into effect. I know um, Secretary Ross, the, the California Department of Agric- Food and Agriculture um, Secretary, they've been working with farmers and ranchers, and I know national organizations have been looking at how do we adopt um, new practices on the farm, especially that, again, abide by the law, but at the end of the day, still put that animal's uh, health and well-being front and center.
1: Yeah, yeah. And they become, uh, I know one of the the fallouts from that, my understanding that uh, the the price of pork, of course, and uh, availability is... And at a time when uh, the, our grocery are, you know, whether it's a meat market or grocery store or whatever, prices have gone up, and that's because... You know, people are trying to survive that operate these businesses and their prices go up. Every diesel, everything has gone up. So it's, it's crazy because we're, we're kind of scaring people away from food sources that are good and affordable and into organic or free range or whatever it is. And some people can afford those, but it's my understanding those can't feed our country, let alone the world. Those are just little niche areas (laughs)
0: it <laughs> You know, it it really is all about choice. And to your point, for those who philosophically uh, wish to purchase organic or another label claim and and have the means to do so, um, that's one thing. But you're exactly right. When we have individuals that are making difficult decisions, making sure they have access to a safe, wholesome, affordable food supply, um, that does use the best animal husbandry, animal science uh, in our case or crop science in other spaces of agriculture culture is necessary and that's why uh, back to you know that number one resource it's taking the time to really understand and research an issue uh, oftentimes even here in Missouri where i'm located we are a ballot initiative state and i I'm not regularly but uh, a handful of times i've been approached by individuals at the farmers market or outside of a grocery store asking me to sign a petition that uh, on first glance sounds good it sounds like it's going to yes. be best for an animal or best for the farmer or someone else in the food supply chain. But again, if you just take a few minutes to think about it and ask some questions, you want to say timeout before we just pass this, this piece of legislation, before we institute this rule or regulation, let's make sure we're thinking about this from all angles. Let's make sure that we're also identifying what are the unintended consequences because not only is it, for example, with with California's legislation around uh, sow housing and and pork production, not only is it affecting consumers through higher prices, but we have farm families that have invested significantly in barns and equipment and genetics that are designed for one production practice, but now are being told you have to change um, because of of this new rule and regulation or law. And and that's going to be a significant investment for those farm families as well. So it's it's not only the consumers, it's also the farmers and their families that are, are going to to bear the brunt of, of this. Um, what many of us in animal agriculture and especially the animal science community would say was uh, maybe something that was passed more on emotion than science.
1: Yeah, for sure. The, definitely a lot to that. I'm in Florida. So how many years ago now we had the farrowing crate mm-hmm. issue and it was... Uh, I think we had three farmers who were affected by it, but again, it set a precedent. The what is it, farm sanctuary? One of the animal rights groups came down here and lobbied hard and made it sound like, why wouldn't we vote for it? It takes care of animals, but there's, as I say all the time, there's a lot more to that story.
0: There you go. <clears> think <throat> Paul Harvey used to say. And now for the rest. Now of the story. for the rest
1: of the story, exactly. Uh, so put a face on farm families. Obviously, you're one of the faces, right? I found when I was um, going to legislative hearings about exhibited animals being banned, I grew up with elephants. Talk about a a divisive topic, you know, and I know um, I have a lot of expertise about elephants and the training and and that. And there Mm -hmm. are studies actually. I mean, you mentioned that earlier. studies, a lot of these things that were passing or considering in these propositions of that, aren't, they don't really have a lot of data and science. In fact, it's, it's emotion and ideology. And to your point in the farmer's market here, sign this, we're going to save chickens, you know? So, you know, the listeners out there, please, there's the, you have to dig a little deeper. And again, if it sounds scary and somebody's making you think it's just atrocious, there's definitely more to the story, but put a face on the people, these people, the farm families were an audio podcast, but you know, who are these people? We always hear about factory farms and I always say, who do you think runs factory farms, <laughs> farmers who are feeding their families, they're eating the food that they're producing.
0: Oh, of course. And, you know, back to statistics, the last statistics I saw out from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's um, the vast majority, the super majority of uh, farming operations and ranching operations here in the United States are still family owned and operated. Now, uh, you know, I am not on the farm. I have cousins who now run our family's farm and ranch operation or a cousin, I should say. Again, it goes back to. Um, One cousin is now able to manage a farm that used to take uh, multiple families to operate just from uh, purely a a labor standpoint. Now, now that's not to say he doesn't have um, hired help. Sometimes it's long term. Sometimes it's seasonal. But anyway, back to the face of the farm and rancher, you know, they look a lot like like your neighbor's. Um, In terms of their moms, their dads, their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, um, we see some families that have multiple generations managing the farm, it'd be like a lot of other businesses that are multi-generational. It tends to be the, the eldest generation that still owns the vast majority of the assets or the business. They tend to still make a lot of the decisions about the direction of the farmer ranch. And then you'll have one or two other generations who are um, still working and involved in the business, but, but aren't in the decision-making process. Right. So for example, well, you know, we say the average age of the farmer in the U.S. is is fifty eight plus years old. Well, that's the farmer that that may own the land, but that doesn't mean they don't have younger generations coming up next. So, just like any business, um, it's capital intensive. So, so it it does tend to be individuals who've been in the business a while who own. Uh, most of the assets. I would say, too, just like our neighbors, they're individuals who are involved in their communities. They serve on school boards and fair boards and uh, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts. And, you know, they're part of their uh, religious institutions within their community. And So and to your point, I would close by saying, again, they're just trying to do the best they can, not only to feed their family and their their neighbors or uh, a global population, but also to care for the resources that they've been entrusted with. So whether that's the land, the water, the air. um, And do do we make mistakes? Of of course, um, everybody does there's times we think something's great and we try it for a while and then all of a sudden we learn oh shoot um there's that law of unintended consequences or something's changed and we can do better and so that's why i would say they they strive to do their best every day like i would i'm back to like I share your philosophy. I'm in the middle. I had a college statistics professor who said everything's on a bell shaped curve. Um, and I would say, you know, the faces of the farms and ranchers are the farmers and ranchers, excuse me, are the same. The vast majority of them are just doing their best and and trying to be good citizens and neighbors and family members. Yes. Every so often you have that outlier. That's the proverbial bad apple. But, uh, we, we see that those are usually far, far between.
1: Well, I, I, my comment to that, cause we heard that in the entertainment and exhibited animal world, <clears throat> cause our stories are so high profile. If the elephant sneezes, it makes, it's an AP story, you know, and oh my, why did they sneeze? You know, just silly stuff. But, um, it, it's, I think it's, uh, important that we think about it in terms of any business. So whether Mm -hmm. you're a doctor, a nurse, a librarian, whatever you are, there's bad apples and just people who are, you know, don't have integrity or whatever it is, or just all about the money, whatever the business, show me an industry above reproach, you Mm -hmm. know, that I don't know of any, but when you get into our, you know, the animal related again, we come along with so much emotion. So it, it just adds to it. Uh, I know back to um, your association, I was listening to you on some other topics and reading up and you were talking about some leadership programs that Mm -hmm. were going to kick off in 23. Um, What's your like, what's your hope for those? And did they are they in fact ongoing at this point?
0: They are. so we um our board actually in 2020, uh, even in the midst of a global pandemic still uh, convened uh, remotely to do a strategic planning session. and one of the um, gaps that they identified was that while we have tremendous leadership, personal and professional development programming that is by sector in animal agriculture or specific to a species with animal within animal agriculture, there wasn't that next level of leadership, professional, personal development training that allows those from multiple sectors or multiple species spaces to come together and and learn and and move animal agriculture uh, forward. So we launched um, the advanced training for animal agriculture leaders. It's a 20-member cohort that goes through a 16-month experience. We call it a co-designed program because our board has identified four pillars of, of learning or experience that they feel it's important for the cohort to go through. Through. But at the beginning of each cohort's experience, we ask them, what does success look like for you? What do you want to know more about? What do you want to experience or, or explore further? And then we weave that into the overall curriculum. So we are in, in cohort two right now. I just actually returned a couple of weeks ago from uh, the Pacific Northwest uh, because cohort two, that's one of the things they had shared with us that uh, aquaculture and animal agriculture in the Pacific Northwest was something that they wanted to learn more about, as well as consumers and consumer preference. So we were in Portland, Oregon, and, and had the chance to visit with some restaurateurs and others who are in niche markets of animal agriculture just to, to you know learn and, and hear their experiences so yes it's it's a, a great program that i was so pleased our board identified a need for and we were able to bring to fruition and like i said we're now in cohort two and uh getting ready to open up applications for cohort three within the next four to six weeks
1: oh fantastic well good for you folks and i'll put all of this in show notes they can oh certainly perfect. get on your website and and check this out um Sustainability. <laughs> I feel like uh, it's a word uh, like the words um, captivity, you know, <laughs> animals in captivity. It didn't used to be a dirty word. So now we say loving human care. But I feel like it's a word that's been co-opted and almost turned around and used um, against the the farm and ranch communities. I don't know if you want to speak to that. I, I saw a little bit <laughs> about that. So... <clears throat>
0: Well, so I think, uh, as you mentioned, sustainability is definitely a word I heard someone say, it's analogous to beauty. Uh, It's in the eye of the beholder. It's a word If you ask 10 people for a definition, you probably will get 12 different definitions. Uh, But at the same time, uh, at our annual conference this past April, we had a speaker who reminded us that if you start to, again, take some time and further explore the concept of sustainability, We used to talk about conservation practices on the farmer. Well, that's sustainability. Um, We hear a lot now about regenerative agriculture. That is sustainability. Now we've heard the phrase climate smart. Um, That is sustainability. The biggest thing, and, and to your point, for a while we tended to be very myopic in our definition or our lens that we were looking at sustainability through. We, we completely looked at the environmental stewardship aspect, which of course is an important part of sustainability, but we also have to look at the social aspect. So food affordability, food security, animal welfare, labor, and human rights and other social aspects. And then at the end of the day, we also have to look at economic viability because if a family, a business cannot survive economically, that business is not sustainable yeah and so looking at all those those factors and i i i sense or and maybe i'm an eternal optimist that we are at a place where we're looking at sustainability or climate smart conservation whatever terminology you want to use through that multifaceted 360 degree view of how do we make sure something is environmentally sound but also economically viable and socially responsible and especially in animal agriculture, that's something we continue to to look at is how do we balance all three of those while still providing a safe, wholesome, affordable food supply? Because at the end of the day, there are a lot of aspects of our society that you and I may not want to go without, but we can go without. But food is not one of them. Yeah. And so we're going to have to have food and agriculture. Uh, so we have to find a way to do that that is truly sustainable through all three realms.
1: Yeah and the social aspect is really interesting because probably as much as ever um in our history we've we are up against this um pressure that uh socially people are making choices and kind of demanding others to make those choices instead of just mm-hmm. saying I like this you like that we'll agree to disagree we've crossed a threshold on that and it's a it's a bullying and a um uh, manipulative tactic that is scary because you know we we still have choices and you and I are able to hold on to those there are other people who really get uncomfortable with that and don't like that pressure and will give in to that pressure um it, you know and and meat is one of the biggest of course animal protein. Cool.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I participated um, before I joined the National Institute for Animal Agriculture. I was working on some consumer research, looking at greater transparency within the food system. We know that that is a space uh, back to our early earlier conversation with fewer people directly involved in farming and ranching and food production. Um, There's a lot more questions. And so we were exploring if transparency is important to consumer trust in the food system, how do people define transparency? What are they looking for? And so, uh, not to go off the um, off on a trail too much, but uh, I had the opportunity to sit in on a number of focus groups and uh, all across the country, and and there were a couple that uh, the focus groups. You know, we didn't have specific specific data, but we knew that in a couple partic- particular focus groups. The individuals in that focus group were doing their very best to provide food for their families, but there was not a lot of of wiggle room in their budgets. Yeah. However, listening to primarily mothers, but others who were the primary provider in their family, talk about the decisions they were making buying conventional versus organic. Yeah. And, you know, it was really heartbreaking when, if philosophically you have. A desire to buy organic and you also have the financial means and time and other resources to do that, that's great. But when we start to pressure individuals who don't have financial or other resources yeah. to buy a product that scientifically is no different, especially from a nut- nutritional standpoint, but yet they feel they need to pay a premium to be a good parent. And I put good in quotes for those who can't see my fingers on the podcast. Yeah, nobody should a <laughs> Um, You know, that's that's what breaks my heart, because I just can't imagine, you know, being a parent or a guardian and going into the grocery store knowing you have a limited number of dollars to spend but feeling like you need to pay more for something just so others won't chastise you or accuse you of not doing your very best for your family.
1: Yeah, the sad part of that, and I experienced this, I have children, they're adults now. But while they were in school, and this was a couple decades ago, they're in their late 20s and 30s, coming home with very slanted emotional information on either a book report or a science project. And, you know, I'm certainly not shy and I'm also, you know, willing to step forward and say this is incorrect or that. But I I know a lot of people who didn't want to challenge that or just took it as truth. If the school sending it home, it must be true. And um, the, I know there were times. in organic was young younger in those days, but we would get information that definitely led you down the road of if you're not feeding organic, you're not doing right, or you know, and scaring the kids. You know, you got younger, you know, tweeners and that making very. And vegetarian uh, decisions, but you know, how are they getting their protein in that? So, we always make our kids delve further and look into it and give a like do a book report at home for us kind of thing. But people are taking this stuff. So, if you're listening, There is more to these stories and there are associations like the National Institute for Animal Agriculture. Protect the Harvest is a uh, group that just puts out great information in layman's terms, takes a lot of the stuff your folks are doing research on studies, data and puts it out there. So, and I think they do a nice job of doing that in, in terms that the lay people can understand. Um, JJ, are there what are the hot uh, hot button items now? Maybe state by state or even federally that may sound good that somebody would look to vote on, but your organization is saying these are so problematic they're going to put people out of business, they're going to hurt animals more than they help them. Is there anything uh, right now that is uh, a hot button?
0: I would say there are two issues that all of us need to learn and explore more, whether it's those of us directly involved in animal agriculture or those of us who simply enjoy eating on a regular basis. (laughs) And again, I am all about consumer choice and I want to celebrate the choices we have, but I want to make sure it's through informed decision making. So the two issues or the two topics that we really need to watch are uh, new proteins coming onto the market. Um, You know, yes, we know that the global population is growing. We're going to need not only more quantity of food but with a growing middle class around the world the quality of foods is going to shift that there's a global protein curve that society has followed for millennia Um, it's not only uh, again uh, bench science but it's also the the social science the psychology the sociology um, that leads to that global protein curve okay i'll get off that soapbox by just summing up that all proteins are not created equally Um, that could mean in terms of actual nutrients. I mean, yes, protein is a broad category, but there might be different amino acids, different vitamin or or, uh, mineral availability. So we need to watch um, those aspects. Also back to the sustainability component. Um, We have, again, several decades, if not thousands of years worth of knowledge and insight around animal agriculture what it takes to raise livestock from a land use, water feed usage, et cetera. Um, we've continued to build that, that, that body of science and work and, and our knowledge around it. With some of the um, newer plant-based proteins or cell cultured um, or other uh lab grown proteins uh we still don't have the life cycle analysis on what those look like from a sustainability standpoint um and so again they may be great options to add to our our food system By no means do I think they're going to replace any part of our food system, but they can be an add on. However, we need to make sure we fully understand um, their life cycle and what they mean to sustainability or other aspects of of health and nutrition. So even though I know there's those who have already decided that one protein is better than another, um, I would, again, caution us to take some time, step back and look at the research, because sometimes if it sounds too good to be true, it probably (laughs) is too good to be true. And, um, oh, go ahead.
1: Well, cricket. Also, things like cricket, like bug proteins, in that nah. manner, and that.
0: Ugh. Sure, you know, there's interesting research, and 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 again, sometimes there's a philosophy um, that might sound good on paper, but um, in a very unscientific way. There's also an ick factor of what do we want to eat? I mean, there's things that yes, I know I can eat that satisfy me nutritionally, but if they don't fulfill me. Um, from a social or, uh, you know, craving standpoint, um, well, that just took the fun out of eating and well, that's not a very fun life. Um. So so again, I think um, watching uh, the protein conversation, learning more about it's important. The second topic that is really concerning, and we actually just released some resources in this space, are around mRNA vaccines. We saw several states putting forth legislation this past year to ban the use of mRNA vaccines in livestock production um that's concerning to any of us who are concerned about who are focused on and think about animal health and well-being on a day-to-day basis because if you ban an entire technology based on emotional thoughts or perceptions that are inaccurate um, you're taking a tool out of our toolbox to preserve animal health and quite frankly, public health, because we do know there are zoonotic diseases that cross species. So um, I would say my bias is fortunately, um, none of that legislation passed this year. However, we do know it's a conversation that's going to continue to come up. Um, Again, if you have a philosophical or ethical belief, um, that's one thing, but when you try to use science to make that argument when the science isn't there, Uh, that's where I'm going to have a debate with people. Um, mRNA is is something that we have been studying for 50 plus years now. Uh, We have just now started to uh, realize its applications within vaccine technologies. of course, any vaccine that, that is or could be developed utilizing mRNA uh, technologies goes through the same rigorous safety and health uh, protocols and oversight through various agencies, whether it's FDA or USDA, depending on its application. So, again, that's a topic that I, I would encourage people to learn more about. And again, if it sounds like somebody's trying to scare you, Um, into making a a decision take some time to research it do your own research make sure that your sources are credible sources
1: yeah exactly Uh,
0: and then you can make that informed decision that's right for you and your family but right now um, all of the the science both in um Traditional protein production and the use of mRNA vaccine technologies indicates that we're on the right track. Uh, but um, again, we always want to look for more science. But those are again two topics that I think people need to be aware of and and really dive into.
1: Great, yeah, it's good to know. I appreciate you putting that out there. And um, again, I'll put this in show notes. But for folks to check out the leadership, the board and leadership of your organizations, because. These are, peop- these are experts. And one of the things I always say, the animal rights groups and the ones who are creating these scare taxic- tactics are not experts with animals and and farming and ranching. They're experts at fundraising and the marketing machine. And to the extent, I just did a segment uh, a couple of weeks ago with Jack Hubbard from Center for mm, Environment yeah. and Wellness Welfare, who mm-hmm. talked about offshore accounts and the millions of dollars... Uh, of these groups who supposedly take care of animals. So if that's your source, if the Humane Society of the United States, the ASPCA, PETA, or any of the animal rights slash protection groups are your source for changing your diet or making your financial decisions, understand that, you know, they are not the experts. And I will I will preach that all day long because I I know that firsthand very well because they've had such a uh, big dent in um, how animals are cared for in the zoo and exhibited animal world. And we have endangered species. I mean, that's, it's such a big conversation. I um, want to wrapping up, but I want to give you the last word. What would you say to the folks? We've covered a lot of ground, maybe the one or two things. If they're, if this has left them intrigued and they want to look up, certainly go on your website, but, What's an action item or something they might do or a way they could think differently? Maybe one or two takeaways to start with.
0: Yeah, the the one or two takeaways, and I'll I'll start with something you just said, where it's, you know, if you have questions about animal agriculture, by all means, reach out to a group like ours or Animal Ag Alliance or the various um, producers associations. They want to answer your questions. They wanna provide you with more information. But even if you're shy and you don't wanna reach out directly as you're looking up information online or in other spaces, um, think back to your uh, introductory to scientific research that you know you have to look for those valid sources that also can be verified by other researchers so back to your point if you're only getting information from one source um if you believe it that's great but go ahead and find out if you can verify it through other sources or if you have questions about it that's really a a, a time to dig in um yeah. and see what others are saying on that topic and then the second takeaway for me always is is you know i go back to that animal agriculture has not only been and continues to be a great part of our food system with a nutrient dense wholesome safe affordable uh food stuff, but it's also raised more people out of poverty and continues to raise people out of poverty, not only here in the United States, but around the world. You know, there's parts of the world where, for example, example, women cannot have a bank account, but they can have a flock of sheep. Uh, And that's the way they're sending their kids to school. That's the way they're providing clothes and and other resources to their family. Um, And then finally, again, Let's not be afraid of our food. Let's be curious and have conversations because food in my book, and I think a lot of other people's is one of the joys of life. Again, we celebrate it. We provide it to the most vulnerable. So let's have a conversation, not a confrontation and make sure that we're making decisions that are in the best interest of humans, animals and the planet and not just one or the other.
1: Fantastic. I love conversation, not confrontation. Well said. Thank you, JJ, so much for being on the podcast. We could, we could talk for hours on this and uh, we'll, we'll send people to the website and some other resources. So once again, thank you. And thank you. What a great conversation with JJ Jones. One of the things that I think he said that I've certainly known, but haven't really put into words is if there's, a scare tactic out there. You're being told that if you don't eat organic or whatever it is, you're either hurting animals or you're going to get sick or just so many scare tactics out there. The more prevalent those are in the information you're consuming, the more likely they're not factual or at least rooted in fact and science. So where do you look? Well, Uh, The association JJ runs the National Institute for Animal Agriculture, the Animal Agriculture Alliance, Protect the Harvest has great information. You can find all of these online. And I've also done podcasts with all of these folks. But also every county has an extension office that is related to agriculture. And you could get a lot of information there. There's also the beef. Uh, producers, the pork producers, chicken, dairy, they all come together at the state, local and federal level, and they'd be happy to talk with you. Especially if you have children, please consider that they need to keep their minds open. They get very emotional and, and make decisions based on emotion. Instead of Uh, gathering more information. So if you're listening to this and your child wants to be vegetarian or they believe you have to buy organic or they're driving those decisions in your home, encourage them to do some more, some more uh, investigating and talk to folks in the know, talk to the people who actually raise food and who actually have the animals on their farms and go see for yourself as i say in every episode i do hope you'll share this episode and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of these episodes rate and review it and i hope you'll join me next time for more animal tales